I went over to Scotland about six weeks ago. We went on a whiskey distillery tour and it was just, it was sad and fantastic. And he was a, like a beautiful man, wonderful man. Subscribe to the Rugby Stream on the OTB Sports app now. Right, you're very welcome back. This uh, Friday evening, we have an hour of top quality stuff coming your way. Uh, the World Cup obviously heading into the knockout stages this weekend. Danish journalist Rasmus Tamholt went viral before the tournament when his live broadcast was halted by Qatari authorities. He joined myself and Shane to talk about how the international media are being stopped from peeking behind the curtain. In Denmark and many other places, we talked about should we boycott the World Cup? Should we not watch it at all? on the television back home in Denmark? Should the Danish Football Association boycott it? Should the players boycott it and not attend the World Cup? Some people will say they did. They did not attend this World Cup. They boycotted the World Cup in Qatar by the way they played. I mean, uh, I watched all the, the matches in the stadium and they just wasn't there. It's like they didn't understand. This is a World Cup. It's now. It's now you have to perform. And we played against teams that, we believe we are supposed to beat easily like uh, Tunisia and Australia, but they played their hearts out. They played like Denmark should have done. So people are extremely disappointed. Also, you know, with the whole fairy tale story about Denmark, Christian Eriksen literally dying on the pits in the Euro Cup and the fairy tale that happened afterwards, like him coming back after eight months, uh, motivating the whole team, now playing in the big stage again in the World Cup and there was so much expectations for this Danish team and they just was a fiasco. It was a fiasco, to be honest with you. It's funny, Rasmus, because the, the Danish coach, Kasper Hillman, that he's, he's talked after the match about being too emotional, that the Danish players were too emotional almost to, to focus. Like, what, what does he mean by that? Because it's an, it's an experienced team. You'd imagine they'd be able to, to set emotions to one side. It's professional players playing in big clubs. So they, yeah, should be able to do that. But, of course, there's been a lot of debate up to this World Cup, like everywhere else in, in Europe. I mean, uh, should the Danish player wear the uh, rainbow-colored one-love armband, or shouldn't they, even though FIFA say they were not allowed to? They have done it anyway. Uh, the support from the Danish people haven't been the same. Uh, this is a World Cup in Qatar. Some people believe it shouldn't be here at all. Uh, and uh, they wanted to see the Danish team not just talk about human rights and how this team, you know, also... Um, having some values that they really stand up for but when it comes to it and they are here they didn't do it so I mean I think the players they could you know lying in their beds in their room in Qatar they could watch the headlines in Denmark not being very nice to the Danish national team as they used to be in the Euro Cup they could do nothing wrong everything was magic whatever they did and the headlines everywhere was you know very positive. The Danish people are very positive out in the streets celebrating all the time. But this time they didn't have the same support and maybe it affected them. I don't know, but there must be some kind of explanation uh, to that performance. You're a veteran of covering multiple World Cups, but I know that your day job is actually international coverage. So as a as a journalist who's not a day-to-day football um Journalist, what's your instinct about the impact that this World Cup is going to have? What, what was the point in Qatar trying to host this World Cup, in your view, having experienced it on the ground now? Well, I think that the Qataris, they really hoped that they would get a lot of positive reviews, that people from Ireland, Denmark and everywhere in the world, they would say, wow, let's go and have a holiday in Qatar. Let's invest in Qatar. But I think it's ended up as a kind of a boomerang. 
uh, for uh, the Qatari government because, you know, what we have seen here is that um, it can be difficult to report. If you're a sports reporter, it might be possible uh, to do it easily. You go from one stadium to the other and report about the, the, the sport. But I also covers, you know, the good sides and the bad sides about the society. I did that also in Russia, in Brazil, in South Africa, in Germany, in South Korea, Japan. Uh, so that's what we do as journalists. We portray the host country. But that has been pretty difficult, uh, as you might know, because I ran into some difficulties with the authorities. And uh, I mean, it, it is not us revealing the Qatari government and the Qatari regime. It was them re revealing themselves. And uh, I mean, my experience is traveling around the world that, you know, uh, the more dirty laundry you have in the basement, you don't want to show to the public, the more difficult it is to work as a journalist. Yeah. Let's just roll that video because I think um, people might be familiar, very familiar with what you're talking about this stage. Det er udsat for en helt del kritik. Hvordan oplever du forholdene lige nu? Jamen, vi kan jo vise, hvordan forholdene er lige her, hvis vi drejer kameraet. Uh, we are live on Danish television, og uh, der kan I se, nu bliver, vi, nu bliver vi stoppet med at filme, og det er forholdene her. Uh, mister, you invited the whole world to the, you, you invited the whole world to come here. Why can't we film? It's a public place. This is the uh, accreditation. Okay. We can film anywhere we want. Okay. There are only, of course... For the Qatar. No, 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 we don't need permit. Break the camera. You want to yeah, break the camera? Okay, you break the camera. Okay. So you're threatening us by 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 smashing the camera. What what happened next? Well, the next thing that happened was that uh, we were asked to to stay there for a while because they want wanted to check. Well, did we actually have the right permissions? As I told them, we had. And after 30 minutes, uh, their supervisor arrived. He looked at our permissions. He said, "Sorry, guys, you have the right permissions." And I mean, when I reflect on all this, I think. They just did what they have been told to do for the last many years. If they see journalists uh, working in the Qatar, they have to check if um, they actually have the right permissions. And often it is very difficult to get those permissions because they don't want to show the dirty laundry they have in their basement and, and, and they don't want that to be published everywhere. And I guess that is why they just didn't was informed that during the World Cup, guys, you have to behave a little bit because now media are coming from all over the world. You cannot arrest people for, for filming in the street or, or, or threatening them by smashing the camera. I mean, imagine if they did that to many journalists down here. I, I'm not the only one who uh, was stopped uh, in filming here. Uh, so, I mean, that has been some kind of a challenge for the Qatari government to accept that, well, you invited us. Yeah, and we're going to portray your country. We're going to go around taking pictures, talking to happy people and to sad people and talk about your society. Were you surprised by that treatment, Rasmus, or were you half expecting it before you went over? I mean, I know the police did, essentially. Like, were you expecting what happened? I mean, I've been traveling in many countries where I have been stopped from uh, filming, but I was a little surprised that during a World Cup that they prepared for 12 years, that they wasn't prepared for us doing a live broadcast from a roundabout. I mean, I was not uh, sneaking into a, a migrant labor camp uh, showing some how some of the migrants they are uh, living in very bad conditions that wasn't actually what i did there i was just doing a live broadcasting and uh, you know i was pretty surprised that they were not more prepared for the whole world, whole world to come and you know uh, portray the country that's really interesting he's not actually a football journalist he's uh um more kind of uh, international affairs tv journalist and so therefore has 
spoken a lot over the years and covered a lot of stories that are non-sports stories but also covered the big football tournaments and like you know I mean the intertwining of sport and politics is is relentless of course it is sure it has to be and um, I just thought it was interesting that like he is having a good time at the World Cup Qatar is a great place to go Uh, you know if you're a tourist it's not a great place to go if you want freedom or workers rights or LGBTQ plus rights and uh, that's kind of what Qatar want. It's, it's gonna they get they're getting what they want. We're all like, oh, it's terrible, and, and then it's like all the fans are coming back on. Actually, no, it's really good. Yeah, well, that's the the John Barnes and Jason McAdoo video. Tell me how good Qatar was. Uh, <laughs> did you see that? No. no, I think it was an old one that was going around a little bit because Barnes was on TV talking about kind of slightly defending the whole we have to respect their culture. Uh, thing and then people put up this ad that him and Jason McIntyre did for Qatari uh, tourism. But anyway, I, I I agree that does seem to be the the seem to be thing is that it's not a bad fan experience, but you just have to he, swallow a lot of or hold your nose. He also made the point that like everything being very close to each other is great, and like I do, I definitely like the multi-country stuff. The Euros, if COVID hadn't happened and there'd been Euros in Dublin, we would have been delighted. So I see both sides to this. Yeah, some mates of mine were able to get to two games in the one day this week because the stadiums are so close. Yeah. And they said, look, there's a remarkable reception from the locals who've been given out and given free drinks and free food afterwards while they're on their way back to the metro. It's incredibly easy to get between the grounds and the atmosphere at some of the matches, particularly a mate of mine was at the Argentina game at the other night and said it was just insane that the Argentinian fans had gone crazy. A lot of the locals and the neutrals had gone to watch that game as well because they thought it could potentially be Messi's last ever game at the World yeah. Cup. So the tickets, I think, were changing hands for big money outside as well, just as a result of the demand of people wanting to get in. But they had gone to the Denmark game, I think, a little bit earlier in the day as well, which is an experience you normally wouldn't be able to do because of the way these tournaments are stretched out. So on the ground, depending on what you're interested in with your trip to Qatar, it seems to have been a pretty decent experience for a lot of the fans who are going to the games. Yeah. That's the way it works. Well, that's that's always the boss. That's yeah. why that's why they're uh, hosting the tournament. Um, okay, so if you want to get involved in the conversation, five three one zero six is the text number. Uh, this week, the Koi Gig team picked their team of the season to date in the women's Super League. Versatile England player Rachel Daly has scored ten goals in all competitions for Aston Villa this term, and she's earned her place up front ahead of some very high-profile rivals. And isn't it kind of interesting that when we're looking, say even that front three, like I don't disagree with anyone that's in there, but that we don't have more of the like superstars as we would yeah. call them, like your Kurs, your Harders. I know she's injured now, or like even Vidima or someone. It feels like this year, while these positions are very set about who we think are the best, it's quite different to what it's been in previous years. Yeah, we probably yeah, would mean, have had like Kerr, Vidima, Mead. I look at this team and I actually, it is the te- the players that are in form, right? That's what it's all about. Because yeah, it's easy to put Sam Kerr in there. But if you if I wanted a centre forward that can play football, can drop in like the, the all-round centre forward, it's got to be daily in there now, to be quite honest. I mean, she's absolutely killing it, isn't she? Just yeah. scoring every game in the air, on the ground. She's helping out defensively. She's quality. And I'm not saying Care doesn't do that, but Care's for me, just her main thing is that ball in behind. She's class at running into channels and stuff like that. But the all-round, I think it would be daily too. Yeah, brilliant yeah. signing for Aston Villa because they needed it. That, like yeah. They struggled there last season and they like nailed it with that signing really. Like, she can't play left back for a bit, like. 
They can't put her left back for England now. Surely. <laughs> Surely they can't. You're listening there to Emma Carroll, Kathleen McNamee and Emma Byrne picking their team of the half season on this week's Koi Gig. The Koi Gig pot on off the ball is in association with Cadbury FC, official snack partner to the Republic of Ireland women's national team. Quick question, right? Yeah. Is it possible that Australia, ramping up the pressure on their women by qualifying for the next stage and having those scenes in Melbourne makes it better for us <laughs> when we go there <laughs> what a spin. and puncture them? I just think, uh, like, there's nothing like the Australian bandwagon and yeah. level of expectation. Yeah, like, home World Cup, like, you know, they're... Whatever you think of Real Madrid fans, Butler. Australian sports fans make Real Madrid fans look Same. polite. And nice. less entitled. Like, so I just think that, you know... Yeah, you'll take it. I'm, I'm all on board that... Um, either that or it's like a crazy inspiration to them and they smash us. That's also a possibility. Every, every week, sorry to change the subject, but every week that we... Uh, Play the Koi Gig uh, clip. I bring up how good Rachel Daly is, and then there you go. They they, they, they they do it, and then nobody asks me about Rachel Daly. Okay, go on. No, I just want to say, Aston Villa Twitter account has a um, compilation of her ten goals in nine games. Good in the air. Let's just put it that way. I think about seven of them are headers, uh, and probably two penalties. I think as well. She is incredible. She was left back or left wing back for England, the only Euros, and now she's playing basically number nine. Villa and she's a full-on striker brilliant in the air anyway when we come back James Horan reflects on the end of his tenure with Mayo's footballers and Waterford star Austin Gleeson talks to us about taming his temper right you're very welcome back a good section of GAA coming here for you James Horan in just a moment but first the 2016 hurler of the year Austin Gleeson joined us during the week he was talking with Joe Malloy and said he's learned not to react when provoked in games he missed last season's National Hurling League final after what he called a moment of stupidity leading to a red card against Wexford. The men signed club and Gleeson discussed his disciplinary record with Joe. It was the red card at Nolan Park against Wexford ahead yeah. of the league final so you missed the league. Uh, Simon Dunahoo gives you a bit of a nudge towards the hoardings, little flick of your hurl and then you strike back. Minimally enough but enough to get a red and you missed the Division 1 final. Uh, give me your thoughts after that day. Um... Yeah, I was disappointed myself. Disappointed that I let the lads down. Um, disappointed that I let the management down. I suppose we were we were a good bit ahead, and there was no need no need to, to kind of even. Look, I didn't mean to didn't mean to connect with him there. That's been that's been honest. I, I like I know I know Simon. I went to college with Simon. Like, and there was a bit bit of bit of chat between the two. It was like even throughout the game. Like, and it was just I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what came through my head to be honest with you. It was just. I didn't mean to, I didn't, didn't mean to hit him right at him anyway. That's one short thing. Mm. Um, I know it was minimum, but still, it was it was a red card, you know. Yeah. Um, I have no problem admitting that. But um, even the day after, um, like we, there was talks about an appeal, and we done a recovery session the day after. I remember going to management not to appeal it. There were too much, too much, um, too much. I suppose maybe media attention or too much um, distraction within the camp. Um, so we just agreed to, to not even try try appeal it. But that's um, interesting because the, yeah, the, the read on that from outside, I didn't realise you'd gone to management to say not to appeal it because the read from the outside was, oh, well, this is Liam Callaghan management almost teaching Ozzie Gleeson a lesson. Like, he'll let him let him sit through the Division 1 final now and that'll give him something to think about. So it's interesting. You were quite happy with that move not to appeal as well. No, i be honest. We, we, talk, we, we, we talked about it um, Monday. I think it was the Monday... Um, Monday evening, or I can't even remember to be honest yeah. what day it was, but um, we talked about it and 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 
they, they kind of well, it was a, look, it was a mutual, it was a mutual thing. Um, I didn't want to appeal it because I didn't want all the distractions for the lads. Um, at the end of the day, I'm only I'm only one player of, of a panel of 35, 36, like so. Yeah. Um, I knew the next man in it, it do just as good as his job as, as I was doing, like so. I didn't want to appeal it that way. The lads, um, just just kind of said said kind of similar, you know, and. Look, it was my own, my own fault, maybe. I know the outside perception thought that that was a a punishment from from Liam saying that we're not going to um not going to appeal it. But no, it was it was it was it was hundred percent mutual. I don't think any of us made the full decision. It was we came to the decision ourselves, like, and that was it. Yeah, uh, the red against Cork or the second yellow against Cork. Have you ever watched that back on TV as a matter of interest? Uh, no, I actually haven't. No. Right, well, the, here's an interesting thing because perception is reality as much as anything. So, again, the camera doesn't capture it brilliantly. I don't, I'm not even too sure what happened. It's yourself and Robert Downey and end up on the ground and you're on a card yeah. and you get another card. But it is very interesting in the commentary, Brendan Cummins was on with Marty Morrissey and he says, but this is before you got the card, he says, for once, Austin might be the innocent party here. Yeah. Uh, so... The perception, I think, is out there, you know, for once, Austin might be innocent. And I'm not, I don't know if you deserved a second yellow for that. I couldn't see the incident very clearly, but that perception's hanging over you now. And that, you know, you, yeah. get, you get a reputation for getting up early, you sleep in as long as you want. You probably have an uphill battle with referees at the moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Look, I can't, can't, can't argue or I can't disagree with the comment. Like at the end of the day, I, I'm, the one that put, I, I'm the one that put myself in that position. Um, I look. It's, it's something it's something that I suppose I need to, I need to, I need to work on um look I, I, I get look I get attention in games when I, and I don't react probably 90 percent of the time yeah um, but then one or two moments of a man is then give me that perception like you know and there might be other players think like maybe maybe thinking the same or the same boat or whatever but um it, it, look it's an uphill battle and it's something that I suppose I need to I need to work on and work on with the with the management we have now of maybe small little small little trigger things that if something happens just to to just walk away or mm. and not react I suppose and look I do I do think I've I, I'm better at it than I was a few years ago but <laughs> again it came at came at maturity but still like stupid little things that 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 always seem to get me caught like and I remember lying on the ground actually during that during that moment against Cork and thinking like I, I can't do it here so that's when I just lit my arms out yes then you did yeah if if if, if I do something here I'm going to get sent off so that's why I just stopped um, and I still got sent off so yeah maybe the perception is caught me there the yeah. reputation caught me there like you know how as a matter of interest so you need to to play your best stuff you need to be fired up and you need to be ready to go and you need to be physical so like we talk here in the cold light of day it's of course you're going to say, look, moment of madness, a bit stupid. And everybody, you know, like understands and that's fair enough. How do you work on it so that when you're in the white heat of championship that you can have a trigger or have something that kind of pulls you back from the brink? How do, how do you actually go about working on that besides saying, oh, yeah, I must must do better next time? Um, I, I was saying probably probably find a little trigger um, between, between maybe myself and maybe management or, or, or whoever is working with us um, have you ever had a trigger before that did the job for a while no no to be honest with you no <laughs> okay. no uh, all people are saying is don't react don't react don't react and kind of thing and maybe 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 the trigger is probably the way to go um, 
but again, just trying to figure out what that is, is is the next step on it. Like you know, it's funny if you're if you're Austin Gleeson, it's hard to know what to do in these circumstances. You come out, you chat about it, and then it gets spoken about, mm-hmm. and you're happy to talk about it, and that's the right thing to do. But equally, then that's on the record, and so the next time you're out, somebody will be like, "Oh, you've talked about this before, so let's talk about it again." So it's definitely. Um, I don't know if I would be advising him to not talk about it and say, ah, look, that's in the past. But, like, we, we, we've had Garot Hegarty on, same thing. It's like, look, I had to put my hands up. I went back and I watched the tape and yeah. probably yeah. did deserve the red card. What, what, what Ozzy Gleeson did as well, and I thought he was almost unfair in himself because I think the, the sending off in the, the in, in the court game was like, I remember it very specifically, and he said the same himself. He said, the reason he stopped dead like that was because he goes, if I do anything else here, I'm going to get sent off. And he stopped dead, and he was wrestled to the ground. And it's the it's such lazy refereeing, the double yellow. Like, you know, it is. Like, even Gleason did nothing. And unfortunately then, because it's two red cards in a month, even though the second one is not his fault, you have to answer questions like that. But I think you're right, Jared, that like there's probably a choice to be made there. But I think... Gleason isn't the type to say, "Oh, I'm not going to talk about that," or "Don't ask me about that." He just doesn't seem like he's built that way. I think you know he wasn't necessarily dying to talk about it, but he's going to answer the questions that are in front of him. He'll do it honestly. I thought he came across very well. I thought it was interesting that he didn't want to appeal the red card against Wexford as well, yeah. even though they were considering an appeal ahead of the league final against Cork. He recognised his own stupidity because, again, in that circumstance, he gets wrestled into the hoardings. Essentially, he should have just went. Look, we're 15 points up on the scoreboard. We're going to a league final next week. Let's not do anything stupid. And instead, he decides to have a flick back. Almost like he was accepting that he had done wrong and therefore I don't deserve to get off, even if I get off on technicality. In the case of the Cork one, I think we all agreed, Jordan, that second yellow was like just remarkably, remarkably harsh. Yeah. And that's where his reputation maybe precedes him a little bit. I mean, yeah. he, oh, he, was seven, he was sent off because he was Austin Gleeson that day. I remember saying it on the show on the Monday after. I think there was two sendings off that week. And... And I thought both of them were sent off in reputation, you know, and you just got to be careful about those things. Right, let's move on. Former male boss James Horan sat down with the football pod crew this week for an exclusive chat about the end of his time in charge of the Westerners. He called time on his second stint as Mayo manager following their All-Ireland quarterfinal defeat to eventual champions Kerry in the summer. And he discussed why he stepped down with Tommy, James and Paddy. No question about it. The last, the, the last couple of seasons have been difficult. I, I think... There was lots of stuff, lots of stuff going on. Um, um, you, you know, after the Tyrone defeat, you know, where we bet bet you guys right in the semi final, epic semi final, all this kind of stuff. Oh, um, I feel James that that final defeat, yeah, seemed from the outside looking in, that was a, a losing an honor in the final is a massive moment, obviously. But that final defeat, having beating beating us. In the semis, I mean, I was retired, <laughs> but beating the Dubs, that was a massive, massive moment for for me. Sure, sure. The, the, ab- absolutely. So, you know, we 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 beat you guys, and we're the world's best, and everything is is unbelievable. And we go out, you know, three weeks or whatever later, and we don't do it, and we're the world's worst and I, I suppose there was where, where 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 things were and maybe we there was you know over time there was so much expectation and everything else that we'd finally beaten Dublin in the championship and it's only a matter of time you know did, did, 
Tyrone were a bad team, you know, that beat Zed Kerry in the semi-final, you, you know, so it wasn't, we were just going to rock up and, 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 and win it. But, but that final definitely changed um, yeah. people's perception. I think... James, the answer looking in, I don't think he's ever recovered from losing that game. I have to say, and, and I, I, we're not privy, we're not, we weren't in the group, but I, I was in the stadium for both of those games. But beating, beating our guys was such a, a massive moment for, for, for our group. As it, we, had, we hadn't lost a game in seven years. And for you guys and, and Andy Moore, a very good friend of ours, <laughs> had been involved in and in the stadium with him. There, there was like, there was a feeling in me when you beat Dublin that this was it. Yeah. And of all you've lost finals, James, and, and losing finals is not bloody easy. Like, but that that felt for Mayo the sense from from the outside that we'd beaten Dublin. This was it. We we are not going to lose this one. We've beaten those guys. We'll beat Tyrone, sure. and it was never going to be that easy. And when you lost that game to Toronto, and probably, obviously, Ryan's penalty and probably not performed as, as, as you would have liked in the final. I don't think your team ever recovered from that. And the relationship with the, with the, with the media, with the supporters, I, 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 from the outside, and, and I'd love to know, do you think it did or maybe it didn't? And, yeah, well, look, look, it, as it, it, look, the... the um... It was a couple of things. So, the, so the final definitely, definitely was 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 an important moment. Um, things went crazy after that. Um, local media, in particular, I'd say. Um, and the approach I'd taken over the last couple of years was was we kept cards close to our chest because we thought that was right for the players. We had so many young players, etc. So we thought that was the right way to do it. So there was, there was. Um, Let's say the, the local media in particular were very disappointed with, with the relationship we had with them or the information that we we're giving them. So when things go wrong, you know, over time, when you're eight years or seven or eight years as an intercounty manager, you're you're going <laughs> there's going to be people that aren't happy with how you do things. So so that we, yeah, we weren't great with the media either, James, I have to say. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's that sparked that sparked off. Um yeah. and it feels I, like I, though. We, Dublin media is more of a national thing. I think it's maybe intense on a different level. The the interest in Mayo. Yeah, the, yeah, that, that's sort of the point I'm, I'm getting. To. Look, I don't want to, I don't want to be the media. It was the media's fault that we lost games. Or I'm not saying that, but we're all in the media now. Yeah, yeah, no, the, re, the reaction after that in the local media in particular. I remember we sat here in Mac. We were in, we were in our house having dinner, and next thing we were the night before we had a row in the car park about something or other. Like we're looking at each other, going. Is this for real? And then you know, you know there were things like um, no no denial or no comment from management. No no, no report ever rang us or like, you, you know, so you, just, so anyway that was a small element, but that that added fuel, and that's what happens then is and you know with Twitter now and you guys know in the media particularly Twitter and all that kind of stuff. There's no truth anymore. Yeah, the truth's gone out the window and logic. Right. Of what people know and understand or have learned as goes, and it becomes whatever sort of propelled the most. It, it creates an atmosphere around the entire group, and that's that's exactly the point, Paddy. I'm I'm I make that, and like I'm not at all blaming this for 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 defeats or anything like that. But it the players 
families, let's say, read and hear and see and absorb that, and players absorb that, and it changes the sh it shifts the atmosphere. Yeah, it's so. Even though people are, oh, you shouldn't be reading that. Shouldn't be reading that. That that that's not the case. It, it it's absor you're absorbed by it because it's all around you. So it becomes a job for us then to try and you have to try and manage that or change that or whatever. So that was that was a that was a we definitely had to deal with a, with a lot of that post post the the Tyrone game. That's the football pod in conversation with James Horn there. Football Pod is brought to you in association with AIB, proud sponsors of the Football Hurling and Camogie All Ireland Club Championships. Check out the hashtag The Toughest for more. When we come back, Brent Pope talks about the best players he's ever played against. On OTBAM this week, rugby legend Brent Pope joined Shane and myself to talk about the 15 best players that he's ever gone up against. He also talked about when he was sent off playing for St Mary's in the All Ireland League. In those days, I got a couple of offers to go and play rugby overseas just for a season. I thought we just finished, we just won the national championship for the first time in in Otago rugby's history, part of the Highlanders group before that. So I got a call from from someone at uh, St Mary's Rugby Club saying, "Would I come over and have a season for them?" I, at the same time, I got a call from um, a club Benetton or something in in Italy. So I had to make the choice: would I go to Ireland? But uh, my grandparents were from Ireland, so I thought, "Okay, I'll come over and spend." a few months at the end of the season, go back to New Zealand the following season. Um, and so I got off the plane and I was told I'd be met by St Mary's Alicadoos, which I was. They were the kind, and I had my big bag there. No phones in those days, no mobiles or no, you know, I think I had a bit of cash, but no visa cards or anything like that. So they took me into town and as customary then, had a couple of drinks with those guys and they brought other players in to meet me and I had a couple of drinks with them consequently a couple of drinks couple of drinks couple of drinks and then they all abandoned me about two o'clock down on Leeson Street so I came out of Leeson Street out of legs at that time where all the regulations used to go with a couple of bags and nowhere to go nowhere to go so a taxi driver took pity on me and he said what are you, where are you going I said well to be honest I don't know and I said, I don't know who to contact, and I've got no money, and I don't know where to go. And he said, what are you over here? And I said, I'm over here to play for a club in, uh, called St. Mary's in Temple Oak, I think. And he said, I know where that is. So he said, I'll take you up. There might be somebody still up. Why he thought somebody would be still up at 2 in the morning, I don't know. But that was in those days, might well have been. So we drove up there, and there was no one there, and it was raining, lashing with rain. And he kind of said, well, there's nothing more I can do. So he sort of dropped me off the gates there. So I huddled into the foyer of, of St Mary's Rugby Club there with a big dry as a bone jacket that I had at the time and my bag as a pillow and I honkered down there for the night and then the next morning somebody came up the club and he just stood over me he was up to unlock the club for the mini rugby and he said hey he said you must be a foreign player and I said yeah that's me and he said come with me he said I know where you're meant to be staying but I thought you know much has changed in rugby because you imagine Brian O'Driscoll or something going out to, to New Zealand or something and be treated that way but uh Oh, I, I, I loved Irish rugby then. Uh, you know, I, I, it really was an eye-opener. I remember being told that, you know, being quickly brought aside by some players and Marys and saying, hey, don't come over here, show us up with your, with your Kiwi ways, you know, because I, I was really fit, you know. So they said, look, <laughs> you know, have a cigarette and a, and a pint of beer. And I said, well, that's the way you want to play it. So much has changed, I'm delighted to say, in, 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 in Irish rugby. And uh, people still people still don't get, I think, you know how proud you can be of this Irish team because it's it's not your national sport. So I go back to New Zealand all the time. That's a bit of a joke for me to say to All Blacks that I played with or something. Hey, it's not even Ireland's you know number one sport. So 
if they get the GAA players involved in the football, they look how good they could really be. But it's an amazing their achievements in a sport that's not your national sport like New Zealand. How long did you play for here before? Because you got into coaching pretty soon. I got into coaching pretty soon, and I tell you, I got into coaching because I, I was I wasn't really coming to the end of my playing career, but in a sense, Victor Costello um, had thought about coming up to St Matthews and he was such a great number eight, a young number eight and I said look I'll stand I'll stand aside, I mean if you get a chance to get Victor I said I'm coming to the end of my sort of career, I was pretty battered and that and bruised um, at that stage so I said look I'll, I'll step away from that and I'll go away and get some experience coaching so I went out to Clontarf for, for six years which I loved you know, Clontarf at that stage, we took them up from the from the bottom of the third division to winning the Leinster Cup in the first division, and I sort of built a team from players that were probably a bit disillusioned from other clubs, and so I really enjoyed that. This phase. is the nineties we're talking. Nineties, and then I was invited back by some of the uh, Mary said never no Leinster team had won the AL at that stage, and that's when AL was rugby was was big, was yeah. the big thing. You'd yeah. only get three or four uh, spectators down to Leinster because they weren't affiliated to any clubs, so you could play for Leinster, but People wanted to know what club you come from. You know, that's not the way now because it's Club Leinster. It's first, some, some players don't even get to play for their club. So uh, so Victor uh, uh, came out to Mary's and, and was great for a number of years. I went off to Clontarf, but then I came back to Mary's in, in the centennial year in uh, 2000 and I coached Mary's. We won the AL for the first time, but that was a great side. I mean, you know, with Dennis Hickey, John McWeenie, Trevor Brennan, who was a great character, of course, Victor Mallow Kelly, Emmett Byrne. You know, we had about 10 internationals at that stage playing club rugby. You know, so that was when it was at its zenith. But uh, yeah, I was involved in some good games. I was involved in that final against Young Munster. Where I got sent off, and that's in folklore now because Young Munster have never won it again. And that was the greatest day of their rugby. But there were some real characters. Um, I don't know that story. <laughs> no, I, I. What did I, you do? I, 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 <laughs> I, I foolishly broke Brozzy's draw, who was a, a well-known Munster player and player for Young Munster. But that game was. They reckon there was they reckon there was twenty eight thousand or thirty thousand at a club game at that stage, and everybody came. It was meant to be a home match for for, for St Mary's, but all the people from Limerick said, "Hey, we're coming anyway, and if you can't accommodate us, we're gonna we're gonna get into the game anyway, anyway they they, they could." Uh, but it was a fantastic occasion, and at you the know, old Lansdowne Road, at the old Lansdowne Road, yeah. So there was a bit of a scuffle at the start of the match because I kind of led the way and said, "Look, I mean, they think we're soft, and you know, well, kind you of know. yeah, well, which Com- comparatively, which, you might which, have been. <laughs> which Munster teams and Limerick teams obviously thought you were." So we said, okay, look, you know, to soften up, we, we initiate a big sort of scrap in the first minute or so, which happened. And both trading trading punches, I think I was probably trading punches with Gerald or someone like that. Keith's father, who was a, a real tough nut and a great player, should have always played for for, for Ireland. But um, the Colossuses, you know, the two Colossuses, and they were a tough pack, man. <laughs> you know, I don't think club rugby's ever seen a pack that kind of hard and the grizzled. I mean, teams were terrified of going down to, 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 to Young Munster and playing them down there because, you know... But uh, it was a tough place to go. But That's th- 1993. I've just found yeah, out. So there was respect. So anyway, just before just before half time, I I had been targeted that match, and, and rightly so because I was probably one of Mary's talismanic players at that stage, and they probably thought if we can get at Pope, we can get at we can get at St Mary's. So uh, I carried the ball up 
on the blind side there and I saw out of the corner of my eye uh, Francis Bosnan, the big uh, young Munster and Munster centre coming over and I thought, you know, kill or be killed <laughs> was my attitude, which had, had always been my attitude in those days because rugby was a lot different. You had to take a punch and receive a punch and, game, and whether you like it or not, that's what rugby was all about in those days. But So it's, then out of the corner of my eye, he was coming across field and I just dropped the ball and I turned around and and, and whack. Uh, unfortunately, with the momentum, and he was a big guy himself, the momentum and I was always, you know, I'm not proud of it, but I was always relatively handy with my fists in, in, in matches and sort of with the momentum, he dropped. And, 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 of course, I was sent off much to the, uh, much to the abuse of the crowd. In fact, after that match, I was—I couldn't go back. I just thought, oh, "Look, you know, all is forgiven. I'll go back and sit the rest of the match out on the on the sort of the bleachers." And no, I was escorted out of the ground by a couple of guardies saying, "Look, you know, you shouldn't—you shouldn't be around." And I thought, "Oh, you know, just sort of get over it." But uh, Brosy and I have remained close since that time, and the the whole stories and folklore and poems and that. And I always get invited down to Young Munster Club by the likes of the Claw and these guys. So there's a bit of there's a bit of respect. Kind Kind of, you know, street respect. That's Brent Pope there. Uh, so I, the the footage of that sending up the whole game is actually on um, YouTube, and it's in the old Lansdowne Road. And there's a feverish crowd, and Classy and his brother are playing for Young Munster, and um, Brent Pope looks like a young man, and he smacks the head off a guy who like looks like he's out cold. Now I'd say he probably got up and played on, but um, there's no red cards, there's no cards. The referee, who I think is I think it's Owen Doyle, but I'm not sure, um, sends him off, and it's just like a I, mean, I think you know what's coming a here. Pointed line yeah. almost yeah. back then, yeah, yeah. Do people know? Did people know even before this week that how close Popey was to winning the World Cup? Yeah, no, you know, like so. the, the cruel timing of how a career. You know, he comes to Ireland after that, then you know, and it's like he told another story in that that actually he got invited back to by his old coach, who then was becoming the New Zealand coach for a final trial, and if he'd gone to the final trial. Like everybody else who was at the final trial, where his teammates all ended up getting 15, 20 caps. And he was with St. Mary's and they had a relegation playoff on the same day as the trial was on in New Zealand, so he didn't go. And then obviously never made it. And there's the sliding doors moment. So Yeah, um, yeah. And when it's Zinzan Brook that replaces you as well, like there's even a, just that extra little bit of kind of like how you start to realise how good Brent Pope was as a rugby player. Yeah. If like, you know, it's Zinzan Brook takes his place in the, in the All Blacks and goes on to be probably. Definitely, obviously, of the amateur era, probably the best number eight of all time. Yeah, yeah. All right, just enough time for me to tell you what's coming up on Off the Ball over the course of the weekend. Shane Curran and Eddie Brennan will join John for a club championship panel tomorrow, while Johnny Ward, Shane Keegan and Mark Lawrenson are chatting about the World Cup on Football Saturday. Ex-Ireland boss Brian Kerr is in studio with Joe to preview Sunday's matches in Qatar. We'll have updates from the Leinster club finals. And Richie McCormick sits down with the Rodfather, Roddy Collins. Splunk is up next.